0: We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 2 as part of a prophecy update. And I'd said on Sunday, I'd figure out my direction and uh, started thinking about the Psalms. And there are several key Psalms that speak about really the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And one of the most quoted scripture verses in The New Testament is Psalm 110, and so it'll be a while before we get over there. And I'm not going to go through every psalm. We did that a few years ago, but uh, each month we'll pick out a key psalm like Psalm 2. From start to finish, it's talking about the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. The first coming already happened, but it's quoted uh, in a couple of different places from Psalm 2, we find quotes from it from verse 1 and all the way, I think, um, I'm trying to find the verse. Oh, yeah, verse 9, uh, verse 1 and verse 9, both quoted in the New Testament, verse 1 quoted at least three times and uh, connecting it to Jesus. And so that's what we want to do is we do a prophecy update tonight. This is known as a royal psalm, and it was used as part of the Davidic line, uh, probably read as each of the kings were anointed as the king, and we have in Scripture from David and his son Solomon and the kings that would follow after them that Following David, we had 20 kings that was part of the Davidic line from uh, David all the way to Zedekiah when he was taken into captivity to Babylon. And so we have this anointing, which we'll see here in a moment, speaking about the Lord's anointed. Now that talked about the physical kings like David, like Solomon, like Josiah, like Hezekiah, they were anointed by a prophet. They have, were considered the anointed of the Lord. And this psalm would fit. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot vain things against the king? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and let us cast away their cords. So, Father, we pray that you would bless us as we study this psalm tonight, Lord, and as we also look at some of the events going on in our world currently and a little glimpse perhaps tonight of some future things as what the world is telling us as we'll read a few headlines tonight and just... Lord, really with a desire to have hearts that's prepared for your coming, whether that is tonight, uh, next week, or 10 years from now, Lord, we desire to occupy, to do business until you come. And so help us, Lord, to have that heart attitude and bless the teaching of your word this night, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I just read verses 1 through 3, and there we find the bonds the cords of the nations and one of the things that's important thank you Kevin one of the things that's important about um, Psalm 2 is looking at the Father the Creator God Yahweh being referred to in this Psalm and also uh, the Son the anointed of the Lord And the personal pronouns. And we find that in Psalm 2, just something as you go through it, you can kind of ponder it. If you have a King James, a New King James Bible, maybe some other Bibles do this as well. Uh, They give a little translating help in this regard of letting us know that this is speaking about the Father, Yahweh, as in verse 2, the Lord now that stands for the to tetragram nation of the name of God, Y-H-W-H. So that is the Lord, the anointed. They're in capital letters, and it's standing for the Father and the Son. So the Lord, Yahweh, is the Father. His anointed is the Son. And he'll even use that term son uh, later on in the psalm itself. But also we have... Uh, personal pronouns identifying the father and the personal pronouns in this psalm is his, he, my, I and me and the son distinguished as the anointed, the king, the son and personal pronouns, me, you, yours, he, his and him. And in verse three, the plural pronoun there, speaking of the father and the son. So it's important to look at the context to see that um this is a conversation between the father and the son, and also someone, the author, we find out in the book of Acts, the author is David, but the author kind of looking into this conversation and giving us commentary on it. So the question, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against Counseled together against the Lord and his anointed saying let's let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us so as I said um, regarding the Davidic line every king following David, David included and the 20 who followed him all the way down to Zedekiah who was taken into captivity they were all considered the Lord's anointed some not many, but some were good kings, some were evil kings, some were started off evil and, and got good in the process, some began good and became evil. Um, it's just a mess as you go through the Davidic line. Ultimately, though, it leads to that of Jesus Christ, who is the true anointed of the Father, prophetically referring to Jesus. And after Peter and John were first arrested, Uh, When they had healed a man who was lame, uh, coming and offering alms and silver and gold, I do not have, but what we do have, we give unto you. At the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And this man was able to not only walk, to leap, to jump around. He was hanging on to Peter and John. They preached a message there in Solomon's court at the temple. About 3,000 people gave their hearts to Jesus that day, and they were arrested on the following day, and they were warned to not speak in the name of Jesus. But in Acts 4, 25 through 28, they refer back to this prophecy. And they, we discover first here that the author of the prophecy is David, but also of the nations raging. This is what they said. Who by the mouth of your servant David had said, Why did the nations rage? The people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus... So here they identify. David was talking about Jesus. For truly, against your holy service, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So this is a prayer that they're praying. They had been arrested, they've been released. Uh, They've been told not to speak in the name of Jesus. They went back to the church. And this is part of their prayer. And they're praying to the Lord. That's why you find the wording here. It's saying against your anointing. They're praying to God. And they're saying that these things happen. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, all coming together against Jesus to do whatever your hand, your purpose determined before to be done. God, this was all you. But they tied Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, to Jesus Christ. And the nation's rage against Yahweh and his anointed will be fully manifested at the great tribulation in Revelation seventeen fourteen, We find that they will make war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords. And the king of kings and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And to this day, nations continue to rage. People continue to plot vain things. The kings of the earth are setting themselves. The rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They are desiring... To break the bonds of God's rule over them, to cast away his cords or his control over their lives. They feel as if God is suppressing, holding them back. It reminded me of the Tower of Babel, where they said in Genesis 11:4, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth I think that's not so bad John people gathering together to build a city to make a name for themselves we've seen that happen often throughout history yet when we go back to Genesis chapter 9 when Noah came off the ark with his sons and their families and made a sacrifice to the Lord and the Lord spoke to Moses. And one of the things that God commanded, I said, Moses, Noah to do in Genesis 9, one to be fruitful, to multiply and to fill the earth. And just a few chapters later, those who were being multiplied and beginning to fill the earth, they said, we don't want to be scattered and spread all out across the face of the earth. Let's make a city. Let's make a tower whose heaven whose top reaches the heavens God said fill the earth they said we don't want to do that again they're casting away his cords his control over their lives feeling that they're being suppressed or held back and for that tower it seems that the primary purpose of the tower some have suggested that they built this high tower if God would ever which he promised he'd never do would destroy the earth by water again that they would have a tower they could climb to get above the floodwaters. I doubt if it would have worked. But others feel that they were making a place to worship the heavens. No doubt the Tower of Babel became another attempt by Satan to turn the hearts of humanity away from God, who loved and created them. So why do the nations rage? Well, Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars, and we see that happening in our world today in Matthew 24, 6 through 8. Jesus said, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but this is not the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now we have to recognize that Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. So I'm not quite sure if all these are the beginning of sorrows at this point. But I was thinking about the wars and the rumors of wars, and I found this article. It's not a Christian article, so this is what the world is thinking. And I found it very interesting. Looking at the conflicts, I've done this before at the beginning of the year, so I've used this website before, and uh, it's the Council on Foreign Relations, and they, they give their predictions about wars and troubles across the world. And uh, for the first time ever, they've been doing this for 16 years, so it's not like they've been doing it, too terribly long, but for the first time, there were two red dots that were right on the United States. Normally, for the last 15 years, the red, orange, and yellow dots so red is really hot contention, orange is could get hot, and yellow there's conflict, but maybe not much will happen they were scattered around the world but not here in the u.s. for the first time in sixteen years two of those dots fell on the u.s. so for the first time in sixteen years i'm reading the article the council of foreign relations annual prevented preventative priority survey found that the leading concern for foreign policy experts is not a foreign threat to u.s. interests but the possibility of domestic terrorism and acts of political violence in the U.S., particularly around the 2024 presidential election. Hmm. I told I told Lily, I said, if something happens, it's not going to be the white Christian nationalists doing it. It seems like they're trying to fuel a fight. And... Uh, so, anyways, it landed one of the red dots. I said there were two in the U.S. Conducted by the Council on Foreign Relations Center for Preventative Action every November, the survey asked foreign policy experts to evaluate 30 ongoing or potential violent conflicts based on their likelihood of occurring or escalating this year, as well as their possible impact on the U.S. interest. This year, eight contingencies are rated as tier one threats. And so the very high likelihood of a high impact, there were three. And the first is that growing political polarization of the U.S. around the 2024 presidential election lead to domestic terrorism and political violence. Number two, the war between Hamas and Israel in Gaza, ignites a wider regional conflict involving, involving other Palestinian territories, further clashes between Israel and Islamist militant groups in Lebanon and Syria. And number three, the surge in migration. Uh, I love how just probably two years ago, I'm not quite sure when the uh, term switched, But the term migration, they almost act like, hey, look, the geese are flying south. Like it's a natural thing that people flood the borders into the United States. Illegal immigration, but that's a bad word to say, or bad two words to say, so... The surge in migration to the southern border of the U.S. driven by criminal violence, corruption, economic hardship in Central America and Mexico. And so the first three highly likely conflicts, and this is on their high tier list, two in the U.S., and I haven't read the third one yet for the U.S. It's in, well, actually, sorry, uh, one in the U.S., one in Israel and Hamas, and the other in Mexico. That's where they had the red dot there. The other one is a medium or moderate impact to high uh, here in the U.S., and we'll get to that in a moment. So the next list, and there's one, two, three, four, five, five more on the list. This is moderate to high impact. The escalation of war in Ukraine resulting in intensified military operations in Crimea, Crimea, The Black Sea, the neighboring states, including Russia, potentially leading to direct NATO involvement. So if NATO's involved, the U.S. is involved, but they're pushing on that. Intensified economic and military pressure by China toward Taiwan, especially around the 2024 Taiwanese presidential election happening the same year a severe cross-strait crisis involving the U.S. and other countries in the region. So again, China, Taiwan pulls the U.S. into that. Direct military confrontation between Iran and Israel, triggered by Iran's support for militant groups in the region and continued nuclear weapons development. Now they talk about that and the... Houthis have been bombing uh, supported by Iran this was written in November and so there's some current activity happening uh, the United States have made several strikes against the Houthis uh, over the last week and even they struck back and we struck back just yesterday so this is something that they wrote about in November and it's happening in January A highly disruptive, this is the other red dot on the U.S., a highly disruptive cyber attack on the U.S., critical infrastructure, including electrical systems, by a state or non-state entity. So they're going to take out the grid. And number five, the acute security crisis in Northeast Asia triggered by North Korea's development of testing of nuclear weapons and long-range ballistic missiles. So eight in the high or moderate range uh, by put together by the Center for Preventative Action or um, Council on Foreign Relations. And for the first time, the U.S. and Mexico, there's three of those red dots over the U.S. and Mexico. While well, all that's going on, the World Economic Forum is meeting this week in Davos, Switzerland. And uh, it's going on from the 15th to the 19th, so still ongoing. Founded by Klaus Schwab, it's the 54th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. And the focus, and this is reading from their website, will be on exploring opportunities enabling enabled by the new technology and the implication on decision-making and global partnership. So four main themes that they're advertising, achieving security and cooperation in the fractured world, number one, creating growth and jobs for a new era, number two, artificial intelligence as a driving force for the economy and society, number three, And a long-term strategy for climate, nature, and energy. Climate change. Number four. So remember that Klaus Schwab is the one who authored COVID-19, the Great Reset. And he said back in 2020 that there are eight things that will come upon our world. And the list of eight are these. Just to remind you of where they're wanting to take us. Number one, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Number 2, the US won't be the world's leading superpower. Kind of seems like they're becoming pretty successful in that game right there. Number 3, you won't have to die waiting for an organ transplant. They'll be made by 3D printers. Number 4, you'll eat much less meat. Meat will be an occasional treat, not a staple it'll be good for the environment and our health less cow less pigs more bugs number five a billion people will be displaced by climate change now I heard this years ago and I think it wasn't successful here in the US and yet I think they've been working on it wholeheartedly the last three years a billion people being displaced by climate change, number five on Klaus Schwab's list. Um, Years ago, I heard that they were wanting to move a billion people to displace them throughout the world to kind of equal out uh, the population of the world, and uh, a half a billion into Europe, and a half a billion into North America. That includes America and Canada. Um, We say America realize it's north america south america the united states and canada Uh, we call it america but it's bigger than just us but um i think they're working on that it hadn't worked out initially because a lot of people who are coming in not the migration but the illegal (laughs) immigration a lot of those who are coming in were coming purely from south america that was mostly catholic who had a strong faith and a strong sense of morality and family but now they're coming from all over the world from all different religions and uh, coming to a neighborhood near you I've been reading about McHenry and some of the legislations that they have had um, regarding the busing of migrants into the area and uh, just in December and January, they've been writing legislation saying we can't afford this. And uh, just today I read of our governor putting up and housing migrants in Chicago in the hotel rooms, and uh, it's happening. So this list is quite interesting. Number six, fluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. They will be a global price on carbon. They've tried to do this in uh, farmers, in other countries. You know, the number of uh, cows, number of pigs. Uh, They have gas. They use the bathroom. They emit whatever. You have to pay carbon price for that. So they make you pay that you can't afford it, and you get rid of them. Years ago, I'd heard that, I mean, thousands of years ago that Turkish government decided to tax their people who owned property that had trees so they decided for someone who is a property owner that they would make them pay a tax on every tree that they had on their property and the more trees you had, the more you had to pay so what does a smart person do that wants to avoid taxes and he has a lot of trees cut the trees down you don't have to pay the tax But what does that do to uh, the country? It actually um, destroyed their country in that regard. So they're trying to cause us to pay. It'll make fossil fuels history, number six. Number seven, you'll be prepared to go to Mars. Scientists will have worked out how to keep you healthy in space. And number eight, Western values will have been put to the test To the breaking point, the checks and balances that underpin our democracies must not be forgotten. (laughs) Democracies. We hear that term. And this is the thing I want us to just remember as we go forward in 2024. You're going to hear this a lot because it's presidential election year around here. And already the Democrats are throwing the term democracy out there. They're underpinning our democracy. And that's. That's actually number eight on the list. I know where they got it from now. But I think when they say democracy, they mean something different than when we think of democracy. So you can use the same words, but unless you define the word, um, it is often deceptive. They had... uh, I was listening to John Haller on... um, What is um, Worldview Matters with David Fiorazzo last week? I was listening to John Haller. I was trying to think of the name of his show. And uh, they had a, a vote that had to do with, in Ohio, in their state, on abortion. And those who want life kind of lost that vote. And John said, yeah, but I think the way they worded things tricked the people. They had two votes to get this bill passed that would allow abortion to take place in their, uh, whatever the Ohio rule was. But he said the first vote, you had to vote a no, and the second vote, if you were for life, you had to vote a yes. So they make the no seem like a yes, the yes seem like a no, and they confuse the people. They're good about doing that, so... They say democracy, and we think of one thing, and they mean something totally different. So though the nations rage, the people do plot vain things. uh, All they seem to be doing is setting up the infrastructure for a coming one-world government, a leader that the Bible describes and names as the Antichrist. And yet... As troubling as this might seem, we need to remember Esther 4.14, the end of that verse when her uncle said to her, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So we might not like the direction that we see our country going, but for such a time as this, God has placed us here to be his witness here on this earth. So back to Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6. He says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So the world's rebellion may reach to heaven like the Tower of Babel, but they'll never conquer God. (laughs) At this time, there is a, continual spiritual and physical war going on since the creation since the fall there's been this war going on now God will be ultimately victorious and Jesus was victorious at the cross and he is the victor but the war is going on and it's a war for lives it's a war for souls and here we have in verses 4 and 5 the Hebrew Imperfect verb seems to say that this is an eyewitness watching the divine response of what's going on in the world. And Yahweh, he, he laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks or derides them. And one day God's extension of grace will come to an end, and at that time, heaven and earth will be full, fully plunged into the last day scenarios that we read about in places like the Psalms, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, like Revelation, and several other passages that are found in Scripture. Like this one in Isaiah 11:4. "...but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." last day scenarios and we'll read of the Lord's rod here in verse 9 coming up in just a few minutes when that day comes when God speaks to them in his wrath uh, distresses them in his displeasure he also says I have set my king that is Jesus on my holy hill that is Mount Moriah in Jerusalem The place where the temple was built, the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, Jesus wasn't crucified on temple grounds proper, but on the outside of the city of David, where they actually took a lot of the stones to build the temple from. It was really an area that was the quarry for some of the stones that went into the construction of the temple area. But it was still all part of Mount Moriah. So God's holy hill, referring to Mount Moriah where the temple was built, where Jesus was crucified, where the Bible speaks of the son of perdition or the Antichrist, Uh, the term son of perdition found in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, sitting on the throne of God as if he is God, meaning that a third temple will be built and there in Israel today. There is the Temple Institute that have made all the preparations for the building of the temple. They're just waiting for permission in order to build on Temple Mount, uh, to find that location where they can uh, have the permission to build the temple first. Right now, uh, that is controlled by Muslims, that area. And so they're waiting for that place. But the Temple Institute in Israel said if we are allowed to build, we can have temple sacrifices going within three or four months. You don't have to have the whole temple going in order to offer sacrifice. All you need is the altar. And they've put so much work and effort into this. So we, on January 14th, it's been 100 days since that horrific attack on October 7th from Gaza into Israel, where over um, 1,400 Israelis were killed and 240 people were kidnapped and taken into Gaza by the Palestinian terrorists. It's been 100 days on January 14th. So just a few days ago, they had an estimated of 120,000 people attend a 24-hour rally in Tel Aviv on Saturday in an area that they dubbed, let me see if I can find that, hostage square where they came together, the largest gathering in Israel over the past year, to have mass demonstrations against the government's plan. Uh, That happened a year ago. If you remember before the war with Hamas, Israel was being fractured because Netanyahu wanted to change their judicial system and uh, there was large protest going on and Israel was being fractured. But all you need is a 9-11 to happen for your country to come together. And this is what happened in Israel. And uh, right now there's still 132 hostages remaining in Gaza, family members coming together to speak, uh, to express their frustration with the government. Um, Saying they've not done enough and they neglected their duty on October 7th when all those people were killed and the people were taken captive. The day before, so that happened on January 14th. The day before NPR, this is, I want to read three headlines and these are all liberal headlines, but three headlines and then just go into one of the stories. NPR reported pro-Palestinian demonstrations in D.C. marched to demand ceasefire in Gaza, January 13, 2024. CNN, at least 320 pro-Palestinian protesters arrested after blocking traffic across New York City bridges to demand Gaza ceasefire, January 8, AP. A global day of protest draws thousands in Washington, And other cities in pro-Palestinian marches, January 13th, and one more paragraph from the AP, thousands of demonstrators coveraged opposite the White House on Saturday to call for an end to Israeli military action in Gaza while children joined a pro-Palestinian march through central London as part of a global day of action against the longest, deadliest war between Israel and Palestinians in 75 years. I wanted to read that paragraph because the APs got it wrong, but a lot of people has it wrong. 75 years ago, technically, there were no Palestinians. And this is where they got it wrong. They make you think that Israel came in on May 14th, 1948, took away the land from the Palestinians, kicked them out, and that's not how it went down. It's horrible that Israel was compelled to go to war against Hamas. But it was only after Hamas attacked Israel on October seventh, 2023, killing around 1,200 people and taking 240 people hostage. And they did horrific things. Uh, just horrific things. So this paragraph in the AP makes it sound like the Palestinian people have been around for 75 years. But back in May 14th, 1948, when Israel became a state, the land consisted of Israelis and Arabs. And at that time, Israelis were called Palestinians. Palestinians. It was just people who lived in that land were called Palestinians. And this goes all the way back to uh, 135 AD when Herodian, the emperor of Rome, uh, kicked all the Jews out of Jerusalem and changed the name to Syria-Palestinia because he wanted to name Israel after Israel's longtime enemies, the Philistines. And so that's where the name was rooted in, but it had to do with the Roman emperor. And so the land became known as that, and people who lived in that territory were known by that name, but not necessarily um, the Palestinian people at that time. Non-Israeli people of the state of Israel were to leave their homes. On May 15th of 1948, there was a war brought on by Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Lebanon. And they were going to sweep into Israel from all fronts. <laughs> Israel was a, a country for one day, and the next day they went into war. They didn't have any proper army. And the men and women had been battle-hardened during World War II, and they fought to defend their land, and they had a truce um, in January 7th of 1949. But here's some of those things we're hearing today that tie back now to 1948 where the head of the Muslim Brotherhood stated in 1948, if the Jewish state becomes a fact and this is realized by the Arab peoples, they will drive the Jews who live in the mist into the sea. In 1966, the Syrian leader, Hafez al Sada Insisted that we shall only accept war and the restoration of the usurped land to out you aggressors and throw you into the sea for good. If there was, in fact, uh, Israeli media conspiracy, we find that the prominent Arab leaders have the one who in- invented that phrase from the river to the sea. So in 1948, the Arab states, they went in and they formed a war against Israel. They told the Arabs there to leave your houses, leave your lands, we'll drive the Jews into the sea, and then we'll give your homes back to you. They were not successful. Uh, That is when these areas like the Gaza Strip were developed. And uh, really, this people who came from all different uh, nations such as Syria and Iraq and Libya and Egypt, they came from all different nations, and they were not allowed to go to these other nations if they went to another nation like Jordan. They were held in uh, camps, and they're being held in camps to this day, just like the area of Gaza today. But they've been used by the Arab states for the very thing that's happening in our world today to kind of upset that area. In fact, they're considered, Israel, the Jews now, we find finding, uh, this is from an article, the real meaning of from the river to the sea. And this was written um, in 2021. So before any of this uprising took place, he said they consider Jews to be unwelcome sell- settlers who perhaps will be allowed to remain in the liberated Palestine so long as they accept their position of inferiority rather than viewing the current conflict as a struggle between two nations they view israel as a european colony projected that they must be dismantled like they dismantled the former colonies in africa and asia and so here we find these things being played out real time in our world today it was hadrian who named that area Syria, Palestine. It was never called that prior to that. And now they've taken on the name uh, to claim that Israel, that article from the AP, that this is the worst war between Israel and Palestine in 75 years. Well, (laughs) there was no such wars 75 years ago. It was a war against Israel and Arabs, yes, but not Palestine because they did not exist. Yet God has gifted this land to Abraham and his descendants, and he gave it the name Israel. So the inheritance, we finish out the chapter. First, in verse 7, Yahweh's decree. I will declare a decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this ties back to second Samuel 714 where God declared to David I will be his father and he shall be my son David in that passage wanted to build a house for the Lord the Lord was still in a tabernacle still in a tent they'd been in the promised land for hundreds of years and David said I'm in a house I got a beautiful palace Lord let me build you a house and Nathan the prophet so do that's all that's in your heart. And as Nathan was leaving, the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, David can't build me a house. Go back in and tell him he can't build the house, but tell him that I will build him a house. And speaking about that dynasty, the, the Vedic dynasty that ultimately leads to Jesus Christ. But initially it spoke of God saying, I will be his father to Solomon and he shall be my son. And so the Lord's anointed that following of the Davidic line throughout the kings of Judah. And yet ultimately speaking of Jesus Christ is quoted three times in the new Testament in acts 1333, Hebrews one five and Hebrews five, five in acts 1333, Jesus being begotten of God is seen as God raising up Jesus from the grave. Acts thirteen thirty-three, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. So that begotten of the Father, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Hebrews one five, though. Angels are at times referred to as the sons of God in the Bible. God only addresses Jesus as his son, never an angel. In Hebrews 1.5, he says, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And finally, in Hebrews 5.5, 5, As God's son, Jesus is also the high priest of God. Jesus wasn't, he isn't a self-appointed high priest. He was appointed, he was anointed to the office by God himself. In Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, So Christ also did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, Jesus is the only eternally begotten Son of God, as seen as his incarnation and his resurrection as the firstborn from the dead. In verses 8 and 9, the Father continues, he gives instruction to his Son. He says, Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. As the son of creator God, Jesus is the rightful heir of the earth. And God has given them to his son to rule over the nations, to rule over the earth. And this quote from Psalm 2, 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them with Pieces like a potter's vessel is found when Jesus is speaking to the overcomers of the church in Thyatira as part of their inheritance. Jesus said to them in Revelation 2, 26 and 27, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like... The potter's vessel as I have also received from my father so here Jesus ties Psalm 2 verse 9 to himself this is the inheritance that I have received from my father and I'm going to let you share in that inheritance for those who overcome in verses 10 through 12 now therefore be wise O Kings Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And if you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So finally, David looks forward to the day when Jesus will rule and reign upon this earth during the millennial reign of Christ. On that day, David suggests that it would be Foolish for the kings, the judges of the earth, to resist the Messiah's rule. Better to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and to kiss the Son in acceptance over his rule over their lives than to resist them and cause his anger to make them perish. And I would say for us, better to kiss the Son by placing our trust in the Lord's anointed, King Jesus, than to experience his wrath on into eternity. So we are to occupy until he comes. I found probably the most, I mean, I shared this with Lily yesterday, reading that report from the Council of Foreign Relations, talking about, I mean, it just surprised me to see two red dots in the U.S., saying that 2024 there could be some tensions and my first thought if it happens (laughs) and they're trying to to bring it up it won't be um those who love this country causing it but those who want to destroy this country so we have so much going on conflicts like Ukraine with Russia and possibly NATO with Israel and Hamas and Syria and Lebanon and Iran, between the U.S. and the Shia Islamic Houthis in Yemen. Also, this conflict that could happen between China and Taiwan, the cartels in Central America and Mexico, because they're trying to move millions of people into the U.S., their desire of the World Economic Forum to move one billion people around this earth. Additionally, there seems to be a push for political unrest in the U.S., a possible cyber attack that would really put us in the dark ages. And though it may seem that our world is falling apart, as far as the Bible is concerned, it seems like everything is falling in place. So what are we to do? Well, Luke 19.13 tells us, Occupy until I come. And Lord, this world is crazy. We've had a glimpse of it tonight. But we've also seen, Lord, from Psalm chapter 2, and where verses 1 and 2 and verse 9 were quoted in parts of the New Testament. Father God, that you are in control of this world, and your Son, the Anointed, Jesus Christ, reigns. And we have just seen a bit of the story being played out in our lifetime. But we want to be those, Lord, who fear you, who worship you, who kiss the sun, and receive you as our Savior, to occupy until you come. Lord, to do business till you come. Let that be the heart of your church today. And give us wisdom, Lord, in this time we live in.